Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 311 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, today's Podcast is brought to you by Financial Peace University. If you want to get out of debt in 2020, stay tuned. And also by Belay, your premier virtual solutions company, a partner of mine as well. And we got an Ask Carrie today talking about uh, at the end of the podcast, how do you get through like the dark months? If you live where I live, you don't get a lot of sunshine at this time of year. What does that do to your mood as a leader? Uh, Are there any tips? We'll talk about that. And my guest today is John S. Dickerson. He is an award-winning journalist, somebody who I have gotten to know over the last few years. And these days, he leads a very large church in the Midwest. And uh, I think you're going to love today's conversation. And guys, by the way, Merry Christmas. It is December 24th when this episode releases, and we're releasing it because it's a Tuesday, and we never miss a Tuesday. And a lot of you will listen live, but many more will listen after. So wherever this finds you, I hope you will have or have had a great Christmas vacation. I hope you actually take some time off. I know for those of you who are in church leadership, that can be hard. For those of you who run your own businesses, entrepreneurs, you never get a day off, but I hope you get some time off. That has been a journey for me over the years as well. We are going to talk to John today about the bias against Christianity, how Christianity has made a surprisingly positive contribution to history, and uh, why it's actually not anti-intellectual. It's going to be a fascinating conversation. Now, About getting out of debt in 2020, the brand new year is almost here. And I know for a lot of people, there is a debt crisis, not only maybe for you as a leader, but for the people that you serve. So on Christmas morning, you know, millions of children are going to wake up to find a pile of presents under the tree. But for parents, that feels like a mountain of debt. So the question will be, how are you helping people in the new year? Because the joy of Christmas turns into stress and worry in January. So How can you be part of the solution? Well, one way you can help them is through a program called Financial Peace University. You may have heard of Dave Ramsey and his teachings. I would add, who hasn't? Financial Peace University has helped nearly 6 million people take control of their money, pay off debts, and build wealth. And this is where you can help. They're looking for leaders like you to help lead a Financial Peace University class. Now, here's the thing. You do not need to be an accountant, financial expert, or, believe it or not, debt-free. Yeah. You can even have debt and teach this. You don't have to take the class before leading it. Actually, 40% of group leaders lead a class while taking it for the first time. Plus, a dedicated advisor will walk you through every step of leading a class, and they're going to give you everything you need for free. So if you're looking for a way to serve others and perhaps help yourself a little bit in 2020, here's what you do. Text give hope. just the two words, give hope to 33789. Give hope to 33789. And do that today and they will get you onto a good path for early next year. Also, uh, what are you doing in terms of getting some additional help? One of the ways I've grown this podcast and the ministry that we do is by using the services of Belay. Belay is your virtual solutions expert. And uh, they have helped me find administrative assistance, a manager for this podcast, and other things over the years. And if you are looking for a little bit of help, packages start as low as 10 hours a week. So you can actually get professional, 
quality people. I mean, I think the strength of Belay is actually, you know how it is when you're trying to hire someone and you got to sift through a mountain of resumes or you don't get the right profiles and you're like, eh, all that stuff is done for you. They actually present you with qualified candidates in a remarkably short window of time. You get to choose and uh, they manage the process for you. So if you're looking to grow your team for as little as 10 hours a week, right through to full time, uh, some of the top uh, performers in business and in the church space use Belay. You can go to belaysolutions.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y. Check things out. They've got a free guide to see, well, among other things, how much staff you really need and whether you can delegate more, et cetera, et cetera. But I would highly recommend them if you are looking for a way to scale your company without all the costs or the hassle of actually hiring new full-time employees. Uh, or maybe you need a full-time employee. You just don't want the hassle of going through the job process of interviewing everybody. Go to belaysolutions.com. That's B-E-L-A-Y solutions.com forward slash carry. Well, John S. Dickerson is an award-winning journalist. His works have been featured uh, all over the place. New York Times, uh, Tom Brokaw presented him with an award for his investigative reporting. We get into that. And he talks about uh, what's happening in our culture, which I think is a fascinating conversation and a good one to bring you around Christmas. So without further ado, here is my conversation with John S. Dickerson. John, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Carrie, it's great to be with you. Yeah, so uh, it's nice to actually do this one in person. I know, face to face. We're doing more and more of them. Yeah. Well, we're going to hang out for a few days here on the uh, West Coast, on the left coast. Yeah, not not too bad this time of year uh-uh. to be by the ocean. I love San Diego. Yeah, yeah it's beautiful. You ever lived in California? Yeah, I lived in the Bay Area for about three years. Oh, yeah. San Jose. Bingo. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. That's right. A little bit warmer down here. It is, and, and a little bit less traffic even, so. Oh, yeah, I guess it would. Traffic is bad up there, isn't it? It is. Between Google, Apple, Facebook, all the, yeah, it's it's just so packed. Mm-hmm. I remember we were trying to get somewhere, my wife and I, and it was like 45 minutes to do a 15-minute drive. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, you had a brand new book, and uh, I want to talk to you about that. It's called Jesus Skeptic. You know, obviously, my background, your background, Christianity and everything, but Christianity, I mean, there's a radical decline. Yeah these days in the acceptance of Christianity, which you've talked about and you've written about before. Um, But you think Christianity has been given a hard shake, that we have been misrepresented intellectually and particularly with next-gen leaders, with millennials and Gen Z, um, and really underplayed Christianity's contribution to social justice and human rights. So to get in the head quite quickly, it's like, okay, you know, Christians are basically oppressive, horrible people who have destroyed the human spirit, and now we're all coming out from the liberation of years of oppressive Christianity. Is sort of the narrative. I'm exaggerating. Oh, yeah. It is the narrative. I think we've brought it on ourselves in a lot of ways. And a big part of why I wrote the Jesus Skeptic book is that I was a skeptic for a season. There was a time where I thought, maybe Jesus didn't exist. Maybe this is all made up. Uh, And I, I, I think Christians can do a better job of showing that we're good for society. We we know the importance of this in relationship. We're not going to argue anyone into belief, but uh, we show them through relationship. But we do have incredible historic figures who were followers of Jesus that we haven't really 
highlighted that. So the Jesus Skeptic book, it's a little bit of my journey from skeptical journalist to believer. And then it's a little bit of unexpected evidence that people like Martin Luther King Jr., uh, who's well known, and dozens of others who are less known, like Frederick Douglass, who is an Mm -hmm. African-American who helped to end slavery in the United States. These people, according to their own writings, were followers of Jesus. So as a journalist, I gather those writings so people can see it for themselves. So it's not just my opinion or someone's opinion. Okay. So interesting to me, because uh, I want to get into the original evidence and everything, but you're saying we brought it on ourselves. I'm not disagreeing with you, but how have we brought it on ourselves? Yeah. So, you know, Carrie, I was thinking about this, knowing that you've got a lot of great listeners who aren't believers, who don't necessarily share our Christian faith. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think something that applies to any domain of leadership is finding the shared values with the people you want to reach. Whether you're running a a restaurant or a law firm or any business at all. And for Christianity, for about 100 years, that shared value with the mainstream culture was truth. You know, what Hmm. is truth? And so we had some really brilliant cases for Christianity that were built on this assumption that the audience believes there's truth. And, you know, I'm, I'm a millennial, which mm. I was laughing the other day. My, my kids, we watched this show called Kids Say the Darndest Things. Oh, yeah. And they had this segment where they went to uh, Gen Z, young children around, around the country, and said, what's a millennial? Mm. And none of the Gen Z people knew what a millennial was. And <laughs> really? I was thinking, funny. it's so ironic that millennials are starting to make fun of baby boomers for being uh-huh. old. And before we know it, we're going to be the old ones. And the Gen Z is going to be making I'm 37 now. I was going to say millennials are pushing 40. Yeah. Right? Yeah, we are. It's Mm. getting closer every day. Yeah, somebody was on my social (laughs) the other day and they're like, you know, when are they going to stop calling us millennials? I'm like, actually never, because I'm a Gen X in my 50s, like the the first of that year. And I'm like, no, I'll be a Gen X till I die. Like, you know, that's just what they call us. That's right. So I think the shared value for millennial and younger Americans and even Americans of various ages who aren't believers is we want to make the world a better place. Whether yeah. someone's a Christian or Buddhist or atheist or agnostic or Muslim who's living in North America, we all want to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. And um, it turns out that many of the great advances that have made the world a better place were initiated by followers of Jesus. So to me, it's kind of a novel and new way of trying to connect uh, to the audience I want to reach, um, people who are skeptics like I used to be, uh, and even young people growing up in the church. You've uh, we've talked on here before about the Exodus. Two yeah. out of three young people raised yeah. in Christian homes turning away, and uh, what all these people, the ones who are leaving and the ones who've never been Christians, have in common is we want to make the world a better place. And uh, frankly, as a journalist, I was really surprised. I knew Martin Luther King Jr., you know, he's the reverend. So I knew he was a Christian and that Jesus was a big part of his thinking and motivation. But I was really surprised when I got into the specific people who ended slavery, created modern medicine, a whole bunch of other things. That, that there was so much Christianity. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're going to go there. But just anything else, like how have we blown it? How have we how have we really messed this up as Christians? Because yeah. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I look at social media sometimes and I'm just embarrassed. I am embarrassed to say I follow Jesus because yeah. of the way you know, people just, it's just a diatribe and a vomit that, that is happening on social. Like it just makes me wince. Yeah. Uh, you know, so easily 
we fall into this who's right, who's wrong. And it's like mm. the Christians, we always have to be right and we have to prove that we're right. And we have yeah. to prove that the other person's wrong. And um, that just doesn't help. Yeah. Even if you are right, that doesn't mm. help. Um, and I think the other thing, if we're honest, is that we are often living the American dream, even in Canada, you know, yeah, we're living the Canadian the, dream. We're, we're living this yeah. very prosperous compared to other believers in the last 2000 years of people who followed Jesus. We are by far the wealthiest. We have it the easiest. And if it, we can easily think that Christianity is about making our life perfect here and now, and anyone who threatens that is against us rather than really seeing what Jesus taught that his kingdom's not of this world and that we are here to radically lay down our life to help others. There is a serious argument. If you listen to people like Ezra Klein, that that is what is going on in contemporary American evangelicalism. And you just hit on it, that basically if you threaten my lifestyle, if you threaten my prosperity, if you threaten, you know, whatever law I think, I'm going to, I'm going to put you in my crosshairs and shoot you down. Do you think that's part of it? Absolutely is. And that's where you see people who say they're a Christian aligning themselves politically and in other ways with things that they think will defend them. Because really, if they're honest, they're not following Jesus who said, to find your life, you lose it. And if you, you know, if you seek your own life, that then you'll lose it. But I'm going to say that over. If you lay your life down, you'll actually find it. And, um, This actually, Carrie, goes into, connects with the book because one of the great arguments against Christianity is the terrible things or evils that have been done by so-called Christians. And what you find in every generation is there are those pure, I call them pure-hearted followers of Jesus who actually want to live the way Jesus said. And then there's always in some generation people who say, I'm a Christian, but they're actually not living out what Jesus said. So, for example, when I studied the end of slavery in the United States, the end of open legalized slavery called the abolition, I found that nearly every single one of the abolitionist leaders was a follower of Jesus, and they were writing their arguments to end slavery based on the New Testament and saying, if we're going to be true followers of Jesus, we have to end slavery. But mm-hmm. we all know there were some, especially in the south, south, southern states of the United States, who had slaves who said they were Christians. Mm-hmm. And it was really this battle of what is true Christianity. In fact, William Wilberforce, who wrote perhaps the most well-known book that helped to end slavery, it was called Real Christianity. Mm-hmm. And that was his whole point. Is like, you can't just say you're a Christian and live a self-pleasing life and only use Christianity when it helps you. That's not actually following Jesus. That's not a true Christ follower. Following Jesus is, I will do what he says, whether it's comfortable or not. And so, you know, Jesus predicted this. He said there'd be wheats, there'd be tares. It was this picture of true believers and false believers. And you know, so what what inspired me is acknowledging there are bad people who claim to be Christians in every generation, and sadly, there there always will be. But let's look at the people who've made the world a better place and see what did they believe. And what we find is they weren't cultural Christians or casual Christians. These weren't people who were just using Christianity for their own benefit. I mean, one example of this is a guy named the Reverend John Rankin. He was a pastor leading up to the Civil War. He started in Tennessee in a slave-owning state, and his church, as a pastor, he got up and said, slavery's wrong. 
We've all, you all need to let go of your slaves if you want to follow Jesus. Well, they ran him out of town. They had no interest mm. in following Jesus. So he set up shop on the other side of the Ohio River and became the first stop on the Underground Railroad to help slaves escape. And pro-slavery activists would often cross the river and they'd burn down his house or burn down his barns. And so these people who followed Jesus in really radical ways to end slavery and to create modern medicine uh, and even to create the university as we know it, they did so at great cost to themselves. They they weren't just cultural Christians. Well, they were, um, I mean, you've, you've talked about slavery a little bit. And uh, I, I mean, that must have been a monumental, because I think back to those days. And I mean, slavery is actually in the Bible, not condoned, but just describe yeah. if you're a slave, if you're a free person, right? That's actually in the Bible. And I'm not saying the Bible condones slavery at all, but for many years, it was just seen as, I mean, people use the Bible to justify slaveholding. Fair? Yeah, they and, did. And that's where they weren't really reading the words of Jesus, who said, I've come to were. set the captives free. Right. Oh yeah. They would yeah. argue that they were. And that's, I think it comes back to, are we actually reading the words of Jesus and doing what he says? You know, I mean, he right. said, I've come to set the captives free. I've come to break the bonds of the oppressed. How hard was that? Like if you, cause you've done a lot of original research for this book as a journalist, how hard do you think that would have been for people living 100, 150, yeah. 200 years ago to say, you know what? I know for 1500 years, we've said that slavery's just fine culturally, but also biblically but now that's no longer true. Yeah. That, 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 I mean, that's got parallels to some of the debate today. Oh yeah, it was way harder than, than we can imagine. A lot of these people gave their lives. I mean, Elijah Lovejoy in 1837 was killed because he was an outspoken, he was a newspaper editor and mm. he was a pastor. So I like that as a journalist yeah, yeah. who's now a pastor. But Elijah Lovejoy, he had a printing press and he would print up these biblical arguments to end slavery. And he would preach from his pulpit to end slavery. He lived in the St. Louis area. And uh, just like with the Reverend John Rankin, these pro-slavery mobs, they would cross the river and burn down his printing press. They did that three times. On the fourth time, they brought a shotgun and they killed him. And so, but these people were fearless, much like you see with Martin Luther King Jr., because they believed that there's an eternal life and that we're in this world to bring about justice. They, they had a biblical view that, uh, every kind of oppression, slavery, rape, racism, all of them go back to what God calls sin, not viewing humans as made in the image of God, and that we are placed on earth to be activists in bringing about God's redemption or restoration of, of his creation. But it's true, we, we really can't grasp how hard it was for them African-American abolitionists like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman, as well as Caucasian ones. But what's so inspiring to me is you look at their writings. For example, in the book, Jesus Skeptic, I show the founding charter of the American Anti-Slavery Association. And when they met and they wrote up their founding charter, there's eight scripture references right there at the top. Hmm. Uh, so just incredible the way that the word of God motivated them uh, to give their lives and setting captives free. So one of your arguments is that the stereotype of Christians as repressive is actually overstated. You think that's true? That this is just, because I listen, I have a degree in history, so yeah. I understand that history is actually an interpretation. I get right. that, right? You think, no, history is a bunch of facts and blah, blah, blah. You know, and there's a few facts, but there's a lot of opinion and yeah. a lot of theories. Um, 
So for the listener, the leader who is listening, thinking, no, Christians are oppressive, abusive, because, I mean, to be fair, you can find the equivalent of the people who would have killed that pastor in the culture today oh, yeah. quite quickly. Yeah. They've got their guns. Yep. They've got their words. They, they've got their social media accounts and they go in the name of Jesus, but they're just as abusive and just as atrocious yeah. as those people would have been 200 years ago. Yeah. Um, and they're claiming to act, but you think that's that's actually not the dominant story of well, Christianity? What I would say is in my life as a journalist, a big part of me coming to faith in Jesus was seeing the pure hearted believers, you know? And mm. let's keep in mind, even when Jesus lived, there were bigoted religious people. They were called Pharisees then. Mm-hmm. And he more or less taught, there's always gonna be these religious people who use God's name to justify their own hatred and prejudice. Those people will always be among you. Mm-hmm. I don't consider them true Christians. And that's yeah, yeah. that's one of the challenges of, you know, this movement, according to Pew Research Center, this is the largest movement in human history. Today, one out of three people in the world claims to be a Christian. That's 2.4 billion people. So if you think of any movement that's one out of three people in the world, it's going to have a lot of wackos and weirdos mm. in it. <laughs> yeah, and I don't want to say, yeah. I'm not questioning. Yeah. I mean, that's not for me to judge yeah. whether someone is actually in a right relationship with God. But I, I can yeah. say from a lot of what I see, and I, and I, yeah. I'm what the reason I'm pushing so hard at this, yeah. obviously I'm a Christian, yeah. you're a Christian, right? But the reason I'm pushing hard on this is I really think that some of our critics have a, an excellent point. Absolutely. And, yep. and I think that those of us who claim to speak for Jesus sometimes end up looking nothing like Jesus. Yes. And if you want to, if you want to look at what that looks like, well, look at the fruits of the Holy Spirit. If God is actually active in your life, there, you should largely be characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control, right? That's right. But a lot of us are not. That's right. And so I yep. just think I'm schooled by that. Yep. I'm owned by that. I'm yep. haunted by that. That's yes. why I'm kind of pushing back so hard because I, I sit with my atheist yep. friends and I'm like, you know what? You guys you guys have a point. Like oh, yeah. we're jerks. Like yeah. we can be... We can be yep. really abusive. We can be really difficult. We can be oppressive. We can be selfish. Yes. We can be self-centered. So you agree with all that, and I, yet you find- I do. I think mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis once said, the greatest argument for Christianity and against Christianity is Christians. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. And yes. so to me, what's unique in this Jesus skeptic book is, is I- one, I acknowledge all that. I mm. own that. Yes, there have been terrible Christians, so-called Christians in every generation, including today. But here's what's unique is I kind of say, if if we were to look at the people who created the university system as we know it, and as a result came modern medicine, the scientific revolution, if we were to look at the people who ended open legalized slavery, and all these people had the same belief system, would that be notable? Uh, for example, and, and this is one of our challenges in the modern era, is just understanding how different our life is than the historic norm that up until 200 years ago, average life expectancy was about 45 years old. Up until 200 years ago, less than 10% of the global population could read. Right. And so these things we take for granted, like the ability to read, the university, which brought about all our modern conveniences through the industrial revolution, the scientific revolution that has brought about us harnessing electricity. If you were to remove those things, we'd be living in the dark ages again. So what I did is I looked at those specific world-changing innovations to say, 
Uh, was it Muslims who started this? Was it Buddhists? Was it agnostics? Was it communists? What was the ideology or worldview of the people who brought about these world-changing advances? And then I found that time after time, it was Christians, not as someone's opinion, but according to their own writings. So whether it's the writings of Isaac Newton and Blaise Pascal in the Scientific Revolution, Frederick Douglass and John Rankin and Elijah Lovejoy in Ending Slavery, John Harvard in Creating the Modern University, or Oxford and Cambridge, if you go back a thousand years, every single one of them was brought about by devout followers of Jesus. That sounds like such a grand claim, and it sounds unbelievable. That, to me, is why the book Jesus Skeptic is important, because it shows all the evidence. You can read Princeton and Yale's founding charters for yourself, and you can see in Yale's charter where it says, for the propagation of the Protestant Christian religion. So what I found is the top 10 hospitals in the world today, nine out of 10 were founded by Christians. Almost all of them started as Christian almhouses or charity houses. Mm. One was founded by a Jewish group, Cedar sinai here in LA, but their doctors were trained at Christian universities. Um, Same thing with the 10 best universities, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, they're all well-known, all started by Christians. Eight out of the 10 have overtly Christian charters. Uh, two out of the 10, I'm MIT and Stanford, they didn't write it in the charter, but the founders were Christians. And so to me, where I say it's misrepresented is, I think for those of us today who are sincerely following Jesus and we're willing to be uncomfortable, we're willing to lay down our life, we're willing to bless our persecutors and pray for them. We're willing Mm. to actually live like Jesus, not perfectly, but we're trying to. I want to encourage those believers that you stand shoulder to shoulder with Martin Luther King Jr. and Mm. Frederick Douglass. And intellectually, you stand with Isaac Newton and Blaise Pascal and Johannes Kepler. And that's not an opinion. We have their writings and have documented them all in the book so that believers can know, hey, The stereotype's out there and it exists for a reason, but I can be someone who actively lives life in a way that I disprove the stereotype. And for our young people, when they get intimidated in a culture that says, hey, if you're a Christian, then you're a bigoted, right-wing, prejudiced, backward, homophobic, Mm -hmm. et cetera. Anti-intellectual. Yes. Mm -hmm. Not only can our young people and ourselves know well, I know I'm actually following Jesus and I love even the people who would accuse me of those things, but I also know I'm in the same movement as Martin Luther King Jr. and Frederick Mm. Douglass and Isaac Newton. And that was for me, Carrie, in this research, just a huge turning point. I I write in the book about some of the big investigative reports I did as a journalist and some of the awards that some of those won and the complexities of when you've got a really complex investigation, you've got experts on each side contradicting each other and how we always go back to the primary evidence to to learn what actually happened. And I had heard that, okay, Harvard was started by Christians, and I knew MLK was a Christian. But when I, in these different areas, the scientific revolution, the university, ending slavery, et cetera, started to look at, not according to Christians, but just according to secular historians, who are the most important people in these areas, Mm -hmm. and then read through their own writings. And when I found over and over again they're writing about Jesus as God and he's their motivation and he's their inspiration. To me, it was just like, it gave me so much confidence as a follower of Jesus that we who actually wanna follow what he says, we might feel like a minority among Christians, but there's a lot throughout history who were like us 
and we can essentially continue what they started. Well, I think the assumption would be that a lot of them were secular, that they were in a Christian culture, but they didn't really have a devout personal faith that maybe, okay, yeah, you know, you were raised in a Christian culture, so of course you're Christian, but you don't really believe that stuff. Is that not what you found? You found that there was a, a devout personal following? Yeah, absolutely. And and I show it in the book. I actually show these writings. So um, I'll read you Blaise Pascal. Um, what I did for mm-hmm. founders of the scientific revolution is I used a secular list of the top 50 scientists who launched the scientific revolution. Right. And then I went through their lives. And so people like Isaac Newton, by the way, in the book, Jesus Skeptic, as well as if you just Google it, you can find Isaac Newton's journals. We have thousands of pages of his journals right. today. So this isn't just public profession, it's private confession. Exactly. Okay. And and in the case of Blaise Pascal, he wrote this uh, poem called Pascal's Memoriam. And in it, here's what he writes. He writes, uh, this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and the one that you sent, Jesus Christ. And then listen to this passion. He says, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, I left him, I fled him, renounced him, crucified him. Now let me never be separated from him. And so Pascal's relationship with Jesus, it was not casual. We find the same with Johannes Kepler, the same with Robert Boyle, who uh, created Boyle's Law in Modern Chemistry. He actually wrote a book called The Christian Virtuoso, which you can read today. And in The Christian Virtuoso, he argues that uh, a view of God as the creator of the um, cosmos enables you to be the best at science. Uh, and it's not just in history. I mean, there's a guy today, Dr. Francis Collins, who's a medical doctor and PhD. He's the director of the National Institute of Health. He's one of the world's leading researchers in essentially decoding the human genome and DNA. He became a believer in God as a result of studying DNA yeah. uh, and is now a devout believer in Jesus. So it's not just people from the past, but what amazed me is the overt writings of these people we've heard of, like Isaac Newton, yeah. Blaise Pascal, and that it is inaccurate what we've been taught in the sense of they were all secular and didn't care about Christians. Right, or that they were theists, right? Like the argument right. is that Jefferson was a theist or a lot of right. the founding fathers in the United States were theists. In other words, they believe in right. some God or deists yep. that they believe in an impersonal yeah. God, a clockmaker, puts yes. the universe into motion and then abandons it. Right. Um, but they didn't have an act of personal faith. So you're right. finding something very different. I want to um, talk about, you argue about the scientific revolution, yeah. which in many ways, you know, you talk to most people and they're like, oh, well, you can't be both scientific and Christian at the same time, that they're almost the antitheses of each other. Uh, that that you said the scientific revolution is in fact an expression of a Christian worldview or uh, is not fun. And I would agree that science and faith are not actually opposites, although you wouldn't believe that looking how some people behave. Um, Talk about that a little bit more and the apposition or the opposition of of Christianity and uh, science. Yeah, so, you know, Albert Einstein once said, First, God gave us Newton's laws of motion. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of his quote essentially says, uh, modern science is the result of that. In other words, there's this, uh, again, it's hard for us to fathom. If you go back thousands of years, the cabinets of scientific understanding were essentially locked. And for thousands of years across all sorts of cultures and on all sorts of continents, people were rubbing sticks together and they were trying 
to unlock these cabinets of scientific understanding. And then all of a sudden, this thing we call the scientific revolution this just burst, the, throws these cabinet doors open. And it was led by specific documented people like Isaac Newton and Blaise Pascal and Johannes Kepler. And so there's, there's actually two arguments here. The first is, um, did all this come from um, a mosque? Did all this come from a Confucius temple? Uh, but all these founders of the scientific revolution had gone to colleges like Cambridge and Oxford, which had been founded by Christians. So the scientific revolution is a tree that grew from the soil of a Christian world. And that's where some people use that to argue and say, well, they weren't actually Christians because everyone was a Christian. Right. Well, that's kind of right. the point. It, the scientific revolution came from a region where everyone was a Christian. So mm. the skeptic just made the point there. But then if we actually look at the writings of Isaac Newton, Blaise Pascal, and again, they're all in the Jesus Skeptic book, then you can see for yourself. Mm. Uh, and that's a big part of my, you know, as a millennial, as someone who's skeptical by nature, as an investigative reporter, my argument or my, my plea is this, don't take anyone else's word for mm. is Christianity good or bad? Check it out for yourself. And that's really what I did in this book is I checked it out for myself. And the conclusion is frankly the exact opposite of what many in my generation have been taught, but the evidence is overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, I think of some of my, uh, one of my news investigations that was awarded by Tom Brokaw and Christian Amanpour from CNN and the amount of evidence, primary evidence that I gathered for that news report. And there was a point as I was gathering this evidence about the true social impact of Christianity where I realized this is the biggest story of my life. There's way more evidence for this than for any of my award-winning journalism Yeah, tell, tell us about that story. And then I want yeah. to go back and circle back. Let me, let sure. me just get this out of the way because you've said it a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, you're not suggesting, like, because you mentioned no. other world religions, that you, you're, not, you're not saying that nothing good ever came out of them. No, just, not okay. at all. I just Not at all. Clarify that. All right. As in case for the person Not sitting there going, you know, yeah. Christians have got the monopoly on everything. I don't think that's the argument that you're making. No, not at all. Okay, great. Not at all. But what I did do is I wanted to look at, if you look at the biggest improvements for humanity, and we inherit these, yeah. so it's easy to assume they're normal. But if you were to remove the university from human history, um, we would lose so much that we take yeah. for granted. And I think that's yeah. it. I mean, there's that study, I forget exactly the source, but I've used yeah. it in my teaching that, you know, the Chinese were trying to figure out why Americans have been so successful. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes despite America right. has been right. so successful or Canada or pick your country. Yeah. And and they said, you know, we thought it was your politics. We thought it was yeah. this. And then we realized, oh, it's your religion. Yeah, And that's an atheistic culture going gosh, why is it this religion thing? Can't we get rid of that? Yeah. And and yet it is something that drives us perhaps more than we realize it. Okay, yeah. so with that said, I would love to know about that story. You raised it. So <laughs> what drew uh, CNN and Tom Brokaw's, uh, and this was, you, you left journalism a decade ago, so this is going back. 15 yeah. years or so. Yeah, actually nine years ago, or okay. it'd be 10 now, in 2009 that I, yeah. um, Tom Brokaw gave me the Livingston Award for Young Journalists, so 10 years and that's, that's, that story was a series, a lot like this book, Jesus Skeptic, three very complex investigations that I pulled into one series. And that's essentially what this, this book, Jesus Skeptic, is an investigation of where did the university come from, where did modern medicine, the end of slavery, um, and actually looking at the primary evidence. And primary evidence was the key in every one of those news investigations. So 
One of them was this loophole in the law in Arizona where medical doctors who'd been banned from practicing medicine in other states, they could come to Arizona and they could get a naturopathic medical license. Okay. It called an NMD. And so you had these medical doctors who had killed patients in other states. Wow. And so they're banned from being an MD. And Arizona was one of only three states that had this N naturopathic MD. And these guys would slip in. They weren't true naturopaths. They would just take about a, a six-week online course and then use their MD degree and say, now I'm a naturopathic MD. And they'd get the NMD license and then they could practice medicine again. And they just went back to practicing the way they had before. And so I was able to document through paper trail records, uh, not only that they had been banned from practicing medicine in other states, but that there were actual patients in Arizona who had died or who had been mistreated by them. Wow. Um, and, and anytime you get into medical liability, you get two experts who disagree because that doctor and the doctor's union, essentially the lobbying force for the medical doctors, they're going to bring an attorney to the court case and actually a medical expert who says, no, our client did nothing wrong. The medical doctor did nothing wrong. Uh, so they have a MD, PhD who's saying he did nothing wrong. And then the attorney for the family whose um, loved one was killed by the doctor has also an MD expert witness in court saying, here are the, the things he did. And so that's what I, <laughs> I learned, learned as a journalist. Way. You get experts who disagree. And that's exactly the case with Christianity. It's not that there are no experts who hold my position that Christianity is good for culture. You've got people like PhD Rodney Stark out of Texas, people like C.S. Lewis, people like the late Dr. Pelican from Yale, who all reached the same conclusion that I reach. But you've also got experts who say, Christianity is terrible for society. Christianity mm -hmm. uh, creates bigotry and hatred. And so what I learned as a journalist is when you've got two experts who contradict each other, the way you get the truth is primary evidence. So in one of these cases, uh, one of these doctors who shouldn't have been practicing medicine, he miswrote a prescription to a patient. Um, she took it to the pharmacy. The pharmacist gave the prescription exactly as the doctor wrote it. It was a lethal dosage. As a pharmacist should. Oh, killed. Yeah, it was a lethal Ooh. dosage. The patient took it home, took the medicine exactly as the doctor prescribed it and died. Well, the family has an MD expert saying that this is what happened and the doctor's at fault. But believe it or not, the doctor has an MD, PhD expert saying, no, no, you know, this happens. The pharmacist should have caught it, et cetera. Well, how do you know the truth? Very simple. You find that original prescription, that piece of paper, you take a picture of it, and now you've got the truth. And it's, uh, it's that simple. And that's how I worked as a journalist. Until you brought that to light. Exactly. And that's one example of dozens within that yeah, yeah. news investigation. But that's why in this book, Jesus Skeptic, I'm so passionate about Here's Blaise Pascal's journal. You can read it for yourself. Here's Isaac Newton's journal. Here's Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King. Here's actual statistics in the world today of the best nations for women's rights. Right. So for example, um, that's another one where you, people assume, well, Christians are against women and women's rights. And as we've discussed, there are some terrible people alive today who claim to be Christians who are very anti-women. So it's not a, you know, there's a reason for the argument. But the facts are the facts. And what I did is I looked at the World Health Organization's rankings of the 10 best nations in the world for women's rights and the 10 worst nations. And then I, co I correlated those with Pew Research findings of what's the percentage of Christians in these nations. And what I found is the 10 best nations for women's rights in the world today are 75% Christian 
in their population, according wow. to the Pew Research Center. The 10 worst are all less than 10% Christian. So where Christianity goes, women have better education, more equal pay, they're allowed to vote and drive cars, things they're not allowed to do in those lower 10 nations. And so that's where I reached a conclusion as a journalist, whether or not you believe in God or the spiritual, if you love the women in your life, you want them to live in a city that has a bunch of big churches. Because statistically, the fact is in our lifetime, they'll have more rights and better education and more equal pay than in a city that doesn't have big churches. And I think that's that's one of the reasons I wanted to have this discussion with you is I think that will come as news to people because they're like, no, Christians are repressive and Christians yeah. are. And actually, if you're even a, a casual student of history, you'll realize, no, they're, the, the, the Christians have, have been radically advanced or, you know, in radical advancement for yeah. uh, women's rights in many respects, right back to the first century. Now, yes. have we had some bad moments? We had some terrible moments, yeah. but along the way, what would you say to those going back to the scientific mm-hmm. worldview that would say, but wait a minute, when Galileo had the audacity to suggest that the uh, universe did not revolve around the earth, but perhaps the sun, you know, the church pre- persecuted him, punished him, and couldn't handle that because that gets that gets banned. I mean, just oh, yeah. drop on Reddit for thirty seconds, you'll right. see it all over there. And right. this is yeah, yeah. It's it's one of those well known historic stories that uh, people repeat, and they take the one anecdote to be representative of all reality. And we've got to be careful about doing that in any discipline or in any domain. Um, and and so that's where I would you know point to Isaac Newton, Johannes Kepler, Blaise Pascal, yeah, the so others. So that's actually true, so yeah. right? It, 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 that is a true story, and it's also a great example of a corrupt church. I mean, mm-hmm. you look at the quote church at that time, and there was very little of Jesus and his way of life. You had mm-hmm. a political machine that was controlling the largest real estate empire in the world that was out to protect itself and its power. Nothing like this prophet from Nazareth who never owned real estate, never had an army, who said, this world is not my home. Uh, so it was a very corrupt church at that time. And you know, after that, there were a number of Christians who started to read the Bible for themselves and said, this is nothing like Jesus. And so they hmm. created what we call the Protestant Reformation. Uh, and the Protestant Reformation was one example of believers saying, we actually want to follow Jesus. And if that means we have to leave, quote, church and leave the big building to get back to what it's all about, we'll do it. And that's the real challenge, I think, for us in our day is to acknowledge, you mentioned it with slavery, uh, same with Galileo. In our day, we have to check our hearts and our motives at a time where we're very comfortable and prosperous to say, are we actually following Jesus? Are we willing to leave, quote, Christian norms and even big church buildings if we had to, to actually follow Jesus today? Yeah, and I I think that's, you know, that's a a really good question. And the reality is, uh, I think one of the greatest things of the, uh, Protestant Reformation is the idea of the church reformed and always reforming because yeah. you can look at that and yeah. say, well, that's part of the problem we have today, right? You got yeah. some arrogant and um, yeah. you know people who are in it for the wrong reasons and others. One of the things that interested me, and it was earlier in the book, you said when you have a powerful story, powerful people often want to suppress it. Now, 
I'm somebody who's like the opposite of a conspiracy yeah. theories, theorist person, right? Like I managed to live my life with a fair degree of freedom and I really think we're, we're pretty blessed. So oh, yeah. I'm like not the guy to jump on conspiracy theories that, hey, John, you want to know what's really going right. on? Right. And yet you've got some real world experience in journalism that showed you that when you're working on a powerful story, powerful people want to suppress it. So oh, yeah. can you talk about that? Oh yeah, I've got a great story about that that I'll tell you. But the reality is the human ego, regardless of someone's religion or beliefs, this is true of Christians, non-Christians, everyone, everyone wants to protect themselves. And when people have power, they wanna protect their power. And if true facts come along that would threaten their position of power, they're gonna be inclined to suppress them. Uh, and deny them. That's just human nature. And so that, uh, again, is a great leadership lesson for all of us is that, hey, if true facts come our way about our work um, that are uncomfortable, we've got to actually look at them. So, but I told you, I'd tell you a story. I was actually doing an investigative series on the jails in Maricopa County, Arizona. So that's the Phoenix area. It's the fourth largest jail system in the United States. Super corrupt sheriff there. I mean, about as corrupt as you can get. Mm-hmm. And, and incidentally, one who many, you know, Christians in that area say, oh, we like him, you know, so there's some wow. parallels there. But um, when I was doing an investigation on those jails, I found um, this terrible uh, death uh, case, a guy named Juan Farias. He was an immigrant from Mexico and he was beaten to death in the Maricopa County jails. And his family brought to me evidence that they believed that it was actually the jail guards who had beaten him to death. Who killed him. Yeah. 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 And this was before the, you know, recent emphasis on police brutality that has been going on in the United States, which is, which is important. But this was, uh, this would have been in 2008. So this was a while before that. But I started to get more and more primary evidence that suggested that Juan Farias was in fact beaten to death by guards in actually a really brutal way. I mean- he was in his jail cell by himself, couldn't possibly hurt the guards, and they're firing uh, these pepper spray balls, essentially like a paintball that's used for crowd control, into his jail cell just to torture him. Uh, then they put on him like a Hannibal Lecter spit mask. It's called a spit mask so that the inmate can't spit at him, but it essentially is a face mask that covers their face. Uh, and he was completely bound um, when more or less they... Um, they jumped on him. They held him down, wrestling him, and they held him down long enough that he died of suffocation. It's called positional asphyxiation. So sorry, listeners, for all the gory details, but Juan Farias' autopsy, I mean, his body was just covered in bruises head to toe. It was so obvious that something had gone on. Well, as I started to document this story and even got Juan Farias' family in touch with an attorney who could represent Mm -hmm. them against the sheriff and the jail system, Uh, All of a sudden, this black, unmarked Ford Crown Victoria sheriff's car starts following me around town. Wow. Uh, So especially when I would go to meet with that attorney or meet with any of Juan Farias's relatives, they'd just kind of follow me. They wouldn't pull me over. And when I'd get to my newspaper office, they'd they'd keep going. It was just kind of like, we're watching you, you know? And it was low-level intimidation compared to what other people in history go through to tell the truth. But it was to me, and of course that sheriff, I mean, he would sue our newspaper. We'd have to counter sue. I mean, he was in a position of power. He didn't want the truth to come out. 
And that is the reality of human nature. No one in a position of power, including pastors, wants a truth to come out that's going to harm them them or take away their power, Mm -hmm. take away Mm -hmm. their position and influence. Every human is motivated by ego and prestige and power. It's just human nature. Uh, And so that's why I write that in the book. And frankly, this reality that the findings that I gathered about Christianity being the greatest movement for social good in human history. That's a huge claim, but I back it up by these dozens of images and primary evidence artifacts in the book, Jesus Skeptic. If Christianity is in fact the greatest movement for social good in human history, there are people who hate Christianity who are not gonna wanna consider those facts just because it would threaten their way of seeing the world or even threaten their power as they know it. Wow. So, and what happened? Because there was more to that story, right? Didn't you end up? Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, just yeah, tie that, a bow so on that, that. That sheriff, he was so corrupt. After my story printed, and then our newspaper printed a number of similar stories in a series, he actually sent a uh, an, a task force to my newspaper editor's home in the middle of the night, yeah. and they went in with ballistic vests on. I don't think they had their guns drawn, but they had their Mm -hmm. guns on them. Those same black cars that were following me around stormed my editor's house at around 1 a.m. They pull him out of his house and they arrest him and they take him to jail, all based on what we had written, which of course is a violation of the First Amendment here in the United States, you know, the freedom of the press. That's not even a- So, you know, my editors ended up, you know, winning lawsuits against him. The New York Times and other very large media outlets came to our aid and the whole nation kind of said- Sheriff, you can't arrest people just for writing stuff you don't like. Um, So absolutely, he didn't want the truth to come out. Um, And that's where I write in this book, Jesus Skeptic. Uh, I consider myself still a skeptic in that I'm a skeptical person by nature, very much like you are, Carrie, Mm. you know? And, And what I argue in the book, or I don't argue, it's just my life journey. If you read the whole book, it's it's less me trying to tear down the status quo and say everyone's wrong. It's more this is what I found and how it's changed my life. And if you want to make the world a better place, it's worth considering. No, John. All right. So I, I am going to play the skeptic role because we're talking about skepticism. Yeah. What do you think the most serious arguments against Christianity are? Because yeah. I'm not somebody who thinks, oh, we have yeah. all the good arguments. Yeah. And you know what? All those people who say Christianity, really guys, seriously, yeah. are just, you know, they're completely misplaced. I think there's some very yeah. good arguments against Christianity. And obviously, I have my personal belief, my personal faith, and what I've staked my life on for the sake of the gospel. But, you know, I what would you say, because I love asking leaders this question yeah. in this realm, what are some of the best arguments against Christianity? It's like, you know what? You guys have a point. Yeah. What would you say? Well, I think exactly the space that we're in, social justice, that despite Christianity's fantastic record of being at the leading edge of social justice improvements in the last 500 years, we're not right now, and we're not known for it. Um, it, it, We do a very poor job, I think, of letting the light shine. You know, Jesus said, don't hide your light under a bushel. We have hospitals all around the world today in parts of the world where there isn't medical care that are staffed by Christian volunteers, but we don't do a good job of of showing that. Uh, right. We have schools all around the world today in places where there isn't education. Right. So those uh, are the things we're doing well. Yes. But if you were to say, atheist, well, you have a point, right, what would it be? Right. Well, I think there's the biggest point, and for me, this was when I didn't believe in God, was just that God even exists. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we live in an age that's so visual. We get everything so instantaneously. 
And I, I really think believing if God exists at all, uh, for me, that was my biggest argument against Christianity. Was It was less about Jesus and Christians and more just about God at all. So how did you get over that? I yeah, mean, because yeah. Because there is that thing that, you know, you're going to have a scientific worldview. Yes. Um, God is really a belief system. Yes. You know, and I always think so is atheism. But anyway, how did you come personally yeah. to say, oh, no, on the balance of probabilities, or I'm right. now quite right. certain that God actually exists and he revealed himself through Jesus? How did that happen right. for you? Right. So it was a little bit nonlinear, but I'll explain the process mm. for me. And part of it was wanting to know, since Jesus did claim to be God, since he's followed by one out of three people in world history, since our calendar's based on him, our biggest holidays like Christmas are based on him, I wanted to know if he had actually existed. I read a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict by a guy named Josh McDowell, Mm -hmm. and that convinced me that at least Jesus was a historic figure and that the gospel writings are uh, indicative of his life and teachings. So then I started to read those words. And you can do this from a completely secular, non-spiritual lens of just saying, we all want to be like Steve Jobs because of how much he impacted the world. Mm -hmm. Would we not want to learn from the most influential person in human history who has shaped the calendar, et cetera, et cetera? And so, oh, I so st- it opened a door. Yeah. So I started reading Jesus' words, and that's where I started to just, they're profound. Uh, I mean, yeah. the things he mm-hmm. says are unexpected, they're antithetical, they're, they're, and, and so then as I'm reading these words of this guy who I have come to believe he lived, he's impacted humanity in a big way. I started, I, I want to say pray, but I didn't believe in God yet, but I call this the skeptic's prayer. Hmm. And what I would do is at night before I'd fall asleep, I would kind of say this to the ceiling, God, if you're not there, I don't want to waste my time. But if there- <laughs> so it's a negative prayer. Well, yeah. Well, that was the beginning of it, right? I mean, yeah, if, if there's great. not a God, what's the harm yeah, in saying great. I don't want to waste my time? It's great. But I'd say, God, if you're not there, I don't want to waste my time. But if you are, if there, if you are this like master engineer who made me and everything, and you actually want to know me, then then I want to know you too. Hmm. And so, I mean, that's why I, like I still that call part. myself a skeptic. Like, what's the harm in saying that? To me, yeah. a true skeptic isn't someone who refuses to believe anything. It's someone who refuses to believe what's false. A true hmm. skeptic insists on the truth. And that's why I say, if you're listening and you're a skeptic, keep being a skeptic, but be a real skeptic and say, what is the actual truth? And to me- that skeptic's prayer was an expression of my skeptic's heart of saying, God, if you're not there, I don't want to waste my time. But if you are, I mean, if you're actually there, then I would want to know you. I mean, mean, if you engineered me and you know what will fulfill me, you know what will bring me purpose. If the metaphysical reality that Isaac Newton believed in, that there's a life after this, that there's dimensions outside of our physical right here, right now, that 80 or 90 years will get on earth. If all that's real, then then I don't want to be so small-minded that I miss out on it. So if it's real, show me. And I'm genuinely seeking. And that's that's what I'd encourage anyone who's listening, um, just start speaking the skeptic's prayer to the ceiling. I, I, no, yeah. I appreciate that a lot. Um, I think we live in an age of poorly formed, strongly held opinions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, 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 I read something on social. Yep. I kind of half listened to a documentary once. <laughs> right. Therefore- I, I now believe, right? Yeah. And, and I think that is the challenge at all because it stands yeah. up to intellectual 
scrutiny. You know, I, w- I was very skeptical in my yeah. late teens and early twenties, yeah. having grown up in a Christian yeah. home and going to church. Uh, you know, I almost lost my faith. Uh, but actually, you mentioned him. It was Pascal, yeah. Pascal's Wager. Yes. I read about that when I was 21, 22, probably in a philosophy class. And I'm like, you know, that's not bad. Like, okay. if yeah. So the I'm going to do the uh, real, like, simplistic version of Pascal's yeah. Wager. But it's like, so if God exists, isn't it better to go through your life assuming that he does? Because otherwise, you know, if he if he does exist and you live that way and you were right, you gained everything. Yeah. If you're wrong, perhaps you lost it all. Yeah. So, you know, that's a pretty safe bet. And then, you know, that's not going to get you through yeah. a lifetime of following Jesus, but it was it, it opened a door yes. for me. Yes. Uh that renewed that. Yes. And I think I it's interesting because if you look at the trajectory, and I think social media has had a lot to do with it and our our instant connectivity, uh the vitriol against yeah. Christians seems to be rising, yeah. perhaps year by year. And I think some of it we bring on ourselves. Oh, yeah. I mean, please, if you're an yeah. angry, if if all of your social media posts are just what's wrong with the world yeah. and what's right with you, please yeah. stop. Please stop. Just stop. Okay? You're not helping anybody. Um, I probably said too much. But uh, anything else as we wrap up, anything else from Jesus Skeptic you'd like to share? You know, I you mentioned that you were turning away from the faith in your late teens and 20s. Yeah. I think we know that's so common. Yeah. Uh, that was me raising a Christian home, completely turned away intellectually, and then completely came back. I just encourage anyone listening, this Jesus Skeptic book is a tool for anyone in your life who might be secretly, quietly having those doubts. Uh, and it's also a tool if you are a follower of Jesus and you want to be encouraged about the movement that you're part of and even uh, inspired to actually live a life like MLK and Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass. Uh, That's my hope for this book is that other believers will have the moment I did in my investigation where I looked at this mountain of evidence and realized, whoa, uh, I'm part of the greatest movement for social good in human history. And I will meet lots of smart, educated people who have been taught the opposite. And I need to be very patient with them. I need to prove them wrong with love and with kindness. But when I get opposed or intimidated by powerful people, I can remind myself internally, hey, they might not know it, but intellectually I stand with Isaac Newton. And they might not know it, but morally I stand with Martin Luther King Jr. And as long as I stay true to the actual words of Jesus, that's the movement that I'm part of. John, thanks. So uh, you have a website? Yeah, johnsdickerson.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there you can get the Jesus Skeptic book. Uh, you can sign up for free emails and all sorts of things that... All that sorts that, of that people like us do, yes. right? Okay. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> John, thank you so much for being with us yeah. today. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you found that helpful. And if you want more, you can get transcripts and you can also get show notes at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 311. Everything is there for you absolutely for free including all the links to his books and everything we talked about in this interview. So we are back a week from now. Yeah, I know it's Christmas Eve, but December 31st, we are back with a fresh episode. I'm so excited for this one. Jordan Rayner is going to be my guest. He is an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur. He's young in his early 30s. And we talk about the ingredients for a successful startup, the essential qualities of a great entrepreneur, and why so much of the career advice people give young leaders is wrong. I think it's going to be a great pre-kickoff to 2020. Here's an excerpt. 
taking the time regularly, and I would argue daily, to discern the essential from the noise, mm-hmm. right? So this is what that looked like practically for me when I was CEO of Threshold. You know, when, when you're when you're starting something, a church, a business, a nonprofit, everything looks important. Yep. And the reality is almost nothing is, right? And you're going to be able to see that in six months. You'll look back like, oh yeah, if I looked at that calendar that day, there was really only one thing I did, two things I did on that day that truly mattered. And so for me, when I was CEO, I would take, uh, so I would start my day with a 90 minute block of totally focused deep work on whatever mm-hmm. was most important that day. And then I would take a 30 minute walk around downtown Tampa. I wouldn't look at my phone. I would walk to my favorite coffee shop. And the only thing I would be thinking about is, okay, out of everything competing for my attention today, out of everything that looks important, what once solved is going to make everything else easier. Okay, so that's next week. And hey, we're going to get to ask Carrie in a minute and talk about how uh, how you kind of get through the winter blues. Okay, but in the meantime, if you haven't yet done it yet, get yourself and some others out of debt or help others get out of debt by texting Give Hope to 33789. That will connect you to the people at Financial Peace University who will help you get started. They are looking for leaders. And if you can help, Text Give Hope to 33789. And also head on over and check out belaysolutions.com forward slash carry uh, if you want to get started with some virtual solutions. They not only do assistance, they do bookkeeping, they do oh, they do a bunch of stuff. So head on over to belaysolutions.com forward slash carry. And uh, I think those two things are going to set you up well for 2020. We have an incredible lineup coming up next year as well, guys. I'm so pumped for it. So Francis Chan is going to be the first episode of 2020. Louis Giglio, John Mark Comer, Liz Forkin Bohannon, who has an amazing, amazing uh, new book out and some great ideas and a fascinating story. Jenny Allen, Jefferson, Bethke, Craig Grishel, Lisa Turkhurst, James Emery White talking about his multi-site dead. Oh, Adam Duckworth, Gary Thomas, Mark Driscoll, oh, so much more. Guys, it's going to be a great year. If you haven't subscribed yet, maybe you're listening for the first time, make sure you do that. And thank you for your enthusiastic sharing of this podcast. It means so much. So now to the question about, well, what about like seasonal affective disorder and all this stuff? So uh, JD says, I'm in Philly. And it's getting dark before 5 p.m. That's a killer. I also have three young boys. He says, as a leader who is further north and further along in the parenting journey, any tips on dealing with the winter lack of sun, warmer weather? Yeah, I do. And uh, we did this with our boys. I mean, I live in Canada. I live north of Toronto. So if you've been to Toronto, sometimes they have snow, sometimes they don't. You come an hour north, boom, we're in the snow belt. We get what they call lake effect snow. So I mean, like beautiful winter, like postcard type days. And so when my boys were younger, we spent a lot of time outside. We just let them play outside. We were fortunate to have a yard on a half acre. We built snow forts, stuff like that. And, you know, I just made sure there was enough lighting out there to uh, handle that. So with the kids, we, we just had a lot of fun in the snow, built snowmen, snow forts, snowball fights, hockey, street hockey, had the neighbor kids over. So there was a lot of activity. I tried to build a rink in our front yard a few times. I think I tried 10 times and succeeded twice. Uh, my buddy Tom was way better at it. So the kids always played at his house. So anyway, you know, but we did stuff like that. I think eventually you just have to cooperate with the seasons. I think you do. Now, you probably don't have as much snow in Philly, uh, but look at what can you do. And there's a parenting school. I'm not really up on my parenting theory like I used to be because my kids are older. 
but you know, there is a parenting school that says, oh, it's, it's bad outside. Don't take your kids out, you know, uh, focus on everything that could go wrong. There's another one that actually says, no, teach your kids to go outside. It's like it's raining out is not an excuse to stay inside. So you send them outside in the rain. You send them outside when it's windy. You send them outside uh, when it's snowy, because if you're waiting for perfect conditions, you'll wait forever. So that's a little thought about parenting is just try to create some rich physical activity. Because otherwise you just sit around and watch TV or, you know, watch your devices and play video games all day. The other thing I would say for you, yeah, I did actually have seasonal affective disorder. I think it was never diagnosed officially, but I'm pretty sure I had it. It was terrible when I was a teenager and in my early twenties. So, I mean, these days they have like UV lamps. I've never used one of those. Um, but try to get outside. I would say, even if it's dark, uh, it gets dark here. November is a really gray month. Uh, I try to get outside every day, go for a walk, do something active. You might try to get outside in the morning as well. They say that really kickstarts your brain. It's trained to look for light. Those are things I do. You know, the other thing I do, this is a dumb little hack, but there are songs that remind you of summer. I remember being a teenager and just like playing songs that reminded me of summer a lot. Because uh, I was pretty sad by the time February rolled around. Uh, I don't struggle with that as much anymore, but sometimes I will put on a good summer soundtrack. But I think physical activity, uh, getting out and socializing, uh, you know, solitude's a gift from God, isolation's a tool of the enemy. And what happens is everybody stays indoors in the winter and people get isolated. So I would say get outside, uh, stay active, stay connected with people, and maybe put on a good summer soundtrack and make sure you get enough sleep. I actually sleep more in the winter than I do in the summer. I don't know whether that's uh, just descriptive or prescriptive, but anyway, JD, I hope that helps. And uh, Philly's a great city. So guys, thanks so much for listening. Uh, we are back next week with a fresh episode. And in the meantime, I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.